Welcome to another night of Warrior Reads. As always, make sure that you've handled anything before bed, that the room is dark, and that you're in a comfortable position. Remember, as you're listening, if you get excited by a story or interested, don't worry about it. Now is not the time for your mind to be racing. Now is the time for your mind to be resting. As always, we'll have copies of the recordings available on our website, as well as even the ability to order it should you want to in the morning. Now is the time for your reward for a good day lived or a reminder to be a warrior tomorrow. I'll give you about five seconds to clear your head and then we'll begin. Welcome warriors. Tonight, our selection is from the book, Warriors of the Wild Lands by Jim Cornelius. Tonight, we will be taking a trip to early 1900s Africa to hear the story of P.J. Pretorius, the cruiser killer. Here is the story about a guy that fights for his own freedom and doesn't yield. Because you are a warrior, you understand that sometimes in life, You have to fight for what you want, or it'll pass you by. And P.J. Pretorius is a great example of that. A true bushman and rancher who just wanted to be left alone on his farm, finds himself hassled and kicked out of his own land by the German military. Pretorius winds up fighting a personal war with the German military in the middle of the African bush. His vendetta soon leads him to working as a spy for Great Britain and helping take out a major German cruiser. It looks like the German army picked a fight with the wrong redneck Mennonite because he would have his revenge and it would be exponential. As always, you can read this book at any time in the future and it's worth the read. But as you let go of the day and its struggles, and prepare for well-deserved rest, you may wish to reflect on your own life and the battles you've won that have gotten you where you want to be and the fights you will soon win to earn your next reward. So relax and enjoy. So let's set the scene here. This is the land of struggle between three peoples, the Boer, Britain, and the Matabele. Southern Africa in the late 19th and early 20th centuries was in the throes of massive change. Economic booms and rushes to diamond and gold fields had yanked the ancient land into the modern capitalist world with neck-cracking speed and force. And inevitably, the peoples of that beautiful land would fight over its riches. Among those warring peoples were the sons of the British Empire, the greatest power in the world. The South African Boer frontiersmen, proud, independent descendants of Dutch and French Huenot immigrants, and the Matabele Nation, an offshoot of the magnificent Zulu, who had found a homeland north of the Limpopo River, a homeland that both Britain and Boer coveted with all the greed that an avaricious people in an avaricious age could muster. The Boers of the Transvaal and Orange Free State Republics 
wanted no truck with the British Empire. They had loaded covered wagons and trekked north out of the Cape Colony back in 1836 to 1837, precisely because they wanted out from under British rule. Not least because the British government thought it fit to concern itself with the rights of blacks, whom the Boers regarded as naturally fit for subservience to themselves. They paid for their land in blood, in epic battles with the Zulu, the Matabele, and other tribes. And they took a dim view of the people they called Uitlander, coming in to dig up their diamonds and gold and build cities that seemed like nothing less than Gomorrah on the field to the deeply Calvinist Boers. The Boers were a rural people. Even the town Boers were horsemen and hunters. They were fine practical horsemen, and perhaps the greatest community of riflemen in history. They made sure their arms were as modern as they could get. By the turn of the century, they were armed with Mauser rifles, millions of rounds of ammunition and modern artillery, ready to battle Britain to retain their independence. For their part, the British saw the Boers as a backward people, stuck in the 17th century, and they were not about to allow them to impede the progress of man, synonymous with the interests of the British Empire, of course. And the tide of history was with them, because nothing could stem the rush for riches to South Africa, no more than it could be stopped in California, Alaska, or Australia. On one thing Britain and Boer could agree, the land north of the Limpopo River should be white man's country. Never mind that it was the homeland of the Matabele and their Mashona vassals. The Matabele, an offshoot of the Zulu nation, had retreated there after a stinging defeat at the hands of Boer frontier partisans, and they found the beautiful, rich country suitable for their cattle-based culture and economy. They could raise their cattle in peace there, and occasionally raid their neighbors for women, tribute, and sport. Like the Zulu, the Matabele were fine warriors, a powerful, organized military people, famed for their short stabbing spear, the fearsome Asegai. They were the product of decades of conquest under their king, Nzilikazi, who had forged the nation out of an epic trek of their own, during which their impi military formations slaughtered and dispersed or absorbed the weaker native nations that lay in their path. The Boers wanted the northern land for cattle ranches and farms. Empire builder Cecil Rhodes just wanted it, all of it. With the usual British sensitivity toward legal niceties, Rhodes secured mineral development rights in the territory, claimed by the Matabele king, Ngula, through artful negotiation and mean treachery, backed by force. In 1893, he would get all of it through war. More than a few Boers rode with Rhodes' British South Africa Company in the conquest of Rhodesia. Then, at the end of 1895, Rhodes and his agents attempted a coup in the Transvaal, stripping the Rhodesian parliamentary police force of personnel to send an armed incursion under Leander Starr Jameson to support the Utalanders that never materialized. The Montebelli took advantage of the Rhodesians' vulnerability 
to launch a bloody revolt in 1896. And bitterness and paranoia, stoked by the Jameson Raid, would lead directly in 1899 to a final reckoning between the Boer and Britain in the Anglo-Boer War, a savage, grinding conflict that would devastate the Boer republics and teach the British a painful lesson about modern war. And all of this brings us to the story of P.J. Pretorius, the cruiser killer. The British Navy had a problem. When hostilities commenced in August 1914, in what would become known as the Great War, several German cruisers went on a rampage across the oceans of the world, wreaking havoc on British and Allied merchant shipping. In the Indian Ocean, the cruiser Konigsberg left a trail of flotsam and wreckage as she took a heavy toll on shipping traffic, finally smashing up the aging cruiser HMS Pegasus before fleeing from the vengeful British fleet. Konigsberg had holed up in the labyrinth Rufiji Delta. Admiral Herbert King Hall, the self-professed ugliest man in the British Navy, was tasked with finding and destroying the German commerce raider. With an aerial attack, with primitive seal planes, failed to take the ship down. Admiral King Hall called for the one man who knew the Rufiji Delta well enough to scout out the Konigsberg and fix her location for British naval guns. On board the flagship Goliath came one of the greatest frontier partisans in Africa, Philip J. Pretorius. A quote by Pretorius, Thus I collected the cost of my farm. For P.J. Pretorius, the Great War was just a continuation of his personal war with the Germans, whom he considered bullies to the core. The son of Boer Vortrekkers, Pretorius had wanderlust in his blood. The sound of a cracking whip signaled utter freedom an adventure to his ears. A British loyalist, despite his heritage. At age 16, he rode transport for the British South Africa Company and Cecil Rhodes bid to take Matabele land for Britain. Land that would one day be called Rhodesia and is now the tormented nation of Zimbabwe. He saw war in the 1896 Matabele uprising then hightailed it further north to savage Zambezia, where he would make his living as a trader and hunter in the deep African interior. He was so far out back that he didn't hear about the Boer War in South Africa until it was over. After years of hunting and trading among people who had seldom, if ever, encountered Europeans, Pretorius took a restorative vacation to what was then called Palestine, he returned to the area of the Rufiji Delta in German East Africa with a bride. In a shockingly short time, he succumbed to the disease and hardship of Africa. The Germans resented Pretorius's success as an elephant hunter, and the jackboot came down on him after the hunter killed a number of natives who attacked his hunting camp and slaughtered his porters. After a stint in prison, Pretorius was cleared in the killings, but the German colonial bureaucracy began to harass him, 
pulling his shooting license and making it impossible for him to hunt. The final straw came when the Germans attempted to force him to sell his farm to a German officer. When Pretorius refused, the colonial government simply confiscated the farm. Pretorius took to the bush and declared war. In his words, I wrote a letter to Nuala informing the Germans that from then onward, I should be hunting elephants in the district and challenge them to catch me, he wrote in his memoir, Jungle Man. The lean, mean Boer poached enough ivory to cover the value of his farm, then pronounced himself satisfied. But the Germans weren't going to let things go. P.J. Pretorius was an outlaw, a wanted man in German East Africa. And when hostilities were declared, a patrol of German officers and Askaris, African troops, set out to run the outlaw to the ground. The Germans hit the hunter's camp in the middle of the black jungle night and barely escaped, jumping into a river with a leg shattered by a Mauser bullet. As happened so many times in his long, adventurous career, Pretorius's African porters and gun bearers saved his life. They carried the hunter as they fled into Portuguese territory. It seems almost every European nation wanted their own piece of Africa at this time. And Pretorius was then arrested. His gun bearer, Saidi, smuggled a Lee Metford rifle to his boss, and Pretorius broke out and escaped to South Africa. On the way, he performed a gruesome bit of bush surgery on himself, lancing his pus-filled leg wound with a native's knife. P.J. Pretorius was one tough bastard. He recuperated in the South African home he hadn't seen in more than two decades, under the watchful eye of British counterintelligence, who figured his story was an outlandish lie and that the Boer was probably a German spy. They must have decided he was legit, because in early 1915, he was summoned to Admiral King Hall's flagship and sent on the spore of new prey, the Koningsberg. Philip Pretorius had his mission, locate the commerce raiding cruiser, Koningsberg, in the labyrinth of the Rufuji Delta in Tanganyika and fix its location for British naval guns. To help him in his reconnaissance mission, Pretorius hired six natives, reported by a Colonel McKay of the King's African Rifles, to be the biggest rogues on the entire East Coast. In classic operator fashion, Pretorius knew what he needed on his native team. I preferred fearlessness to any fastidious taste in native honor, and I assured myself of their silence by the threat of wagging tongues would be cured by removal. I spoke their language well enough to carry conviction. Pretorius and his gang of rogues set up a base in the tiny island of Mafia at the mouth of the Delta, clambered through the coastal mangroves, and proceeded inland to find their prey. They kidnapped local natives, promising them a comfortable captivity, and secured guides that took them to a hill overlooking Koningsberg's lair. Pretorius stalked the ship several times, climbing trees to observe it through powerful naval binoculars. He even boarded the cruiser, disguised as an Arab, accompanied by a local chief 
whose son was serving as a shipboard stoker. The scout determined the number and size of the guns, discovered that the ship's torpedoes had been removed and placed in boats close to the mouth of the river. The scouts also observed the German patrols and shore defenses. But that was hardly the end of the mission. In addition to its manifest dangers, recon can be brutally tedious, demanding a profound level of patience to secure precisely the information a commander needs. Admiral King Hall wanted ranging points to the Königsberg and a possible channel of approach. The Navy needed to know if the channels were mined and whether or not the ship could stream into the Delta and open fire on the cruiser. Pretorius wrote, And here began a series of investigations, the monotony of which was only bearable because of the results obtained. I pushed a dugout in and out of the score of channels, often risking daylight to map the localities, perhaps glad of the relieving adventure brought by the possibility of a Teutonic face suddenly peering at me out of the bush. The tedium got even worse when Admiral King Hall demanded an hourly record of the tide in the Delta over the course of a full month. Finally, the scout's recon was done. Two shallow draft gunboats known as monitors arrived, ready to take on Koonigsberg. Pretorius and his boys were sent out in a dunhow to lure the cruiser out, but they wrecked in a storm and were only narrowly saved from capture, rescued by a British whaler tasked to the mission. The Germans knew the British were on the scent, and the scouts had another narrow escape when performing recon on the shore at night. Once discovered, they scattered to the seashore and escaped heavy Mauser fire under cover of darkness. As the British fleet closed in on the mouth of the Refugi, Koonigsberg opened hostilities with the Salvo, followed by the German shore batteries. Now aboard the British flagship, Pretorius pointed out snipers in three platforms, which were promptly wiped out by the shipboard guns. Using Pretorius's charts, the Mercy and the Severn prowled up the selected Delta Channel, and Pretorius heard their guns open up deep in the bush. Spotter planes flew overhead, and Pretorius heard the gratifying command, fire again at the same mark. Hell rained down on the Koonigsberg for several hours. The Germans, with no hope of escape, finally scuttled her. That night, a dense fog descended, which lasted several days. When it cleared, Pretorius accompanied the landing party that found the carcass of the deadly raider. He wrote, The great ship's devastating career was ended. One would scarcely have known what she had been. For here, beside the bush crowded edge of the small island against which she had been moored, lay little more than a vast disorder of tortured steel, made the more unlovely by broken bodies strewn at every angle. In fact, Koenigsberg was not quite dead. The Germans had salvaged several of her guns, which would serve as field artillery for Colonel Paul von Leto Vorbeck, one of the greatest practitioners of guerrilla warfare in history. Leto Vorbeck, with Koenigsberg's remaining crews serving in his columns, 
would lead the British on a not-so-merry chase all over Eastern Africa. And the British commander, South African soldier-statesman Juan Smuts, would call on P.J. Pretorius to run him down. P.J. Pretorius was awarded the Distinguished Service Order, DSO, for his role in the Koningsberg operation. The hunter wasn't about to rest on his laurels, however. He still had a major role to play in the East Africa campaign. Leadership of that campaign had been handed to General Juan Smuts of South Africa. The general, once a successful guerrilla leader in the Anglo-Boer War, swiftly set out making the British campaign in East Africa over into a primarily South African campaign and he tapped the Boer hunter to be his chief of scouts. Pretorius lived a life of extreme danger and hardship, almost perpetually behind enemy lines, seeking out intelligence of Leto Vorbeck's dispositions, movements, and intentions. He wrote, That was the sort of life I led for many months, often taking part in battle and then horroring off into the night to gauge effects. It was an exhilarating but harrowing existence, staying one jump ahead of the Germans, carrying a price on his head. Pretorius covertly armed and instigated a native resistance movement in German-held territory, a feat that disrupted Leto Vorbeck's food supply and earned Pretorius a bar for his DSO. In another instance, Pretorius was able to isolate and effectively starve out one of Leto Vorbeck's columns under the command of a major Tafel. One of Pretorius's many native spies intercepted a message from Tafel to Leto Vorbeck, in which Tafel reported his route and his need for supplies. Pretorius arranged to clear the country of its native inhabitants and their foodstuffs, which Tafel needed to carry on. Tafel nearly blundered into salvation by marching up a river gorge where little Vorbeck was descending. But as Pretorius watched with batted breath, Tafel made a fateful turn onto the Macombe Plateau, where, deprived of food, he was forced to surrender his command, consisting of 3,400 Asakaris, 19 officers, 100 European non-coms, and a thousand porters. It was a satisfying cap to Pretorius's military career. Ever restless, the hunter would soon, after the Great War, take on the task of shooting out the rogue elephant herd that occupied the Otto Bush, an area of dense scrubland in the South African Cape. Hunters as esteemed as Frederick Courtney Sellis had deemed the project suicidal Pretorius himself resisted taking on the challenge, but when the district commissioner told him he could find no one else to do the job, the hunter plunged in. He moved into a camp in the Addo and inaugurated an elephant war, earning his life and his living with a double-barreled 475 Jeffrey. Today, such elephant slaughter seems wanton and grotesque as wasteful and ugly as the slaughter of the American bison. Such was not the view in 1919, when elephants often imperiled life and property, and Pretorius's project must be judged by the standards of his day, not ours. 
symbolic of changing times and ways, that the remnant of the herd he left behind formed the nucleus of the Ondo Elephant National Park herd, now a tourist attraction to the Cape. So what is there to say about Major P.J. Pretorius? He was an exceptionally affected frontier partisan. His work carried the vestiges of the romance of frontier scouting and the daring-do of Wellington's exploring officers. But his missions of reconnaissance, force multiplication, supply disruption, and psychological warfare were very modern. British SAS personnel, or U.S. Army Special Forces, Green Berets would recognize in Pretorius a kindred spirit. He was comfortable with native cultures and languages. Pretorius's success, his very survival, depended on his relationship with his Asakaris, his native scouts and the African populations in his areas of operation. He cultivated a loyal and effective intelligence network. Sometimes the natives paid dearly for their association with the Boer hunter. In one incident, Pretorius narrowly escaped capture and watched from the bushes as the Germans hanged seven of his men on a tree. He wrote, By such means the Germans registered their disapproval of natives rendering me any assistance. Pretorius transferred all of his skills as a hunter, honed in the most rugged and dangerous terrain imaginable, to the operations of the military. There was simply nobody better at operating in his environment than him. He had an unusually strong danger sense as well. He wrote, My immunity from wound, capture, or death was not due entirely to my knowledge of bushcraft, nor yet to any special genius to which my opponents could not lay claim. I had the help, many times exemplified, of an uncanny sense that I can only describe as psychic. I had a sixth sense which brought me such a definite premonition of danger that I had startled those whom I had been guiding by taking a sudden right-angled turn without being able to produce a logical reason. The scout recounts an incident in which he was getting ready to bed down when his danger sense goaded him back into the saddle. He and his boys fled the area, through an empty native village and into the bush beyond. They heard the rifle fire of the Germans as they attacked their camp. When the Germans followed their prey into the native village and decided to billet there, Pretorius and his boys counter-ambushed them and put the Germans to panicked rout. Such talk of a sixth sense of some kind of psychic power may seem a little too woo-woo. But it's not that uncommon with people who live in constant peril. A veteran street cop can tell you he just knows when something's wrong. Perhaps it is simply the five senses tuned to a fine pitch, a natural intuition forged in the annealing furnace of bush warfare. Luck is the imponderable factor. Pretorius notes that on more than one occasion, Men trapped to substitute for him on missions when he was otherwise assigned met with death. One of them was Celis, shot in the neck by a sniper. Was Celis taken out on a bullet meant for Pretorius? No way to know. It is certain that snipers and sharpshooters were assigned to take out the scout at any opportunity. 
But all through his daring career, Pretorius diced with death and never came up snake eyes. Years of hunting in equatorial Africa and the stresses and rigors of covert operations took an awful toll on Pretorius's health. Yet he just kept on coming. He rose from his sickbed to make sure that the Taffel operation went well, and when it was done, he was too. He wrote, I was utterly whacked. Never before so near the finish in my life. And from that moment, the remaining pictures of the African campaign are a blurred mixture of doctors, hospitals, stretchers, and nurses. I had gastric trouble and neuritis, and an artery in my lung burst. But I pulled through in the end, after a few months. And he never quit roving and adventuring. He married again and had children. And for the sake of their education, he did spend some time in settled life. But right up to the time he wrote his memoir in 1939, the hunter remained addicted to the utter freedom of the bush, rejoicing when it came time to, quote, put aside the unaccustomed pen with some relief to take up my more familiar Jeffries and go again to the wilds where the big animals roam. He died in 1945. At his request, his memoirs were not published until after his death. If there's a Valhalla for frontier partisans, there is surely a seat by the roaming fire for Major P.J. Pretorius.